Hey everybody, welcome to Mount Deer Podcast. We're on our way to deer camp in the truck, Taylor and I, and the boys are coming behind us and we're headed to hunting. We are, we are on our way. Not too often we get to do a podcast from the road, but we're going to be in the truck for a while and hopefully you're in your truck and doing the same, (laughs) either lugging out a big buck or headed to where a big buck lives or carrying him to the check station or going to pick up the meat. One of of those will all do. Well, it's about 1 o'clock right now, and uh, hopefully hopefully this sounds... I mean, it's kind of weird just doing this on the road. Hopefully the sound isn't uh, too bad for you guys to listen to. I'm trying to get mine figured out because I'm using the mic that's built in. So mine might might sound a little weird, so we'll just let Rodney do the talking today. And we'll see what happens. Vermont has... uh, adopted within the last couple of years here a earlier doe season um, with a muzzleloader um, trying to focus on getting those extra does that just don't seem to get shot later on you know the actual deer management later on in the season and uh, especially with late muzzleloader season and it's also like an, a split archery season that runs pretty late um, getting those extra does dead and especially them them high areas where they're high density areas where there's lots of does has been difficult and the department has been working pretty steady on trying to get those numbers back where they should be and of course there's a large variance of reasons but um, when you when you head into an area that's got tons of suburbs or um, lots of humans around and the deer population is just as big or bigger than it is in the mountains or anywhere else and you need to get those deer out of there somehow it's it's always a struggle for you know your fish and wildlife departments and it it seems to also be a struggle in the hunters i i listen and watch to uh, all the comments and you know belong to a bunch of hunting facebook groups where everyone's expressing their opinions and of course Teresa used to be on the vermont fish and wildlife board and um she's listened to a billion opinions about how things are and the way it's managed and there's there's quite a few important points that come across that sometimes are missed and um we got to talk about some of that stuff we had a we had a few gentlemen in the shop the other day and uh, we were discussing does and we were discussing you know permits and and uh buck age class structure and things of that nature and you know one of the things that they said is like, well, we get permits every year, but we never fill them. You know, it's it's not like it's not like for the lack of opportunity because it's you know Vermont's got a decent deer herd, it has a decent doe population, and there is quite a few hunters. It's just you know as a as a state, Vermont just socially just doesn't really have a desire to shoot does. I'm sure there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons there's a lot of carryover for how things used to be because the management plan way back when was when you didn't have any deer that you're shooting does is actually you know something you didn't want to do if you want to boost the population but if you want to if you want to alter the population in any way it starts with does and not with bucks you know one of the probably the most important thing with the least amount of control that the department works for constantly that is ignored by most sportsmen is the fact that they care about how the land is. Most people just care about how quickly and easily they can get a deer. 
and really don't care about the pasture, so to speak. Like, you know, if you had a farmer mentality and you, you plugged your whole farm full of cows, you will be without grass soon, right? And if they had to survive on just the grass on your farm, it wouldn't take long when you stockpiled them and just kept cows and you killed all the bulls after a while it really would stockpile a lot of animals and then it would deplete the farm and then the farm wouldn't actually hold the cows anymore that's kind of the case with the landscape and their their main concern is to protect and serve and also to like educate and uh, police uh, the existence of our wild resources which everyone owns and they they deal out the wild resource to the people who own it everyone owns a deer herd it's a public trust resource so they deal it out but they they give it out as much as they can but not too much and they're one of their mandates for fish and wildlife departments is the fact that they have that the citizens are entitled to a healthy and abundant deer herd now those two words are key when it comes to deer management which is essentially shooting does most deer management is shooting does most buck hunting and and killing only bucks is stockpiling deer right there, there's a difference between the two um and of course most of the time the sportsman tends to hide behind the fact that he's doing it for the numbers right i go out and hunt so that i keep the deer herd under control and i stockpile right I'd, i want to stockpile males so let's get some antler restrictions i mean this is a giant dynamic thing and there's a million little parts to this thing that probably need discussing at one time or another and we're going to get to them all eventually one way or the other but the important thing to remember is that if you're in an area with very few deer and when you just go out and buck hunt for the most part you're not really managing deer in that area that buck hunting is not really deer management yes it does take an individual off the landscape you know a single one but the the does when you have to go in and actually start taking does out because there's so many deer on the land I don't know about you, but I'd much rather just go out and shoot one doe and effectively just take one animal's life and effectively keep two other deer from having to be shot themselves. See what I mean? You know, whether the two fawns that she would have in the fall are actual or if they're uh, potential fawns, those those are still eliminated one way or the other actual or potential and by taking those out i i know the argument is like you take them out you could be taking out a button buck and now i'm not going to be able to have another enough bucks kicking around right in vermont our, our average doe is a five-year-old so that goes to show how much protection we give to our does and also too um it would be wonderful if our average buck was a five-year-old but yeah, would. we would practically have to have buck permits at that point. Yeah, you would. Now, there's a lot of arguments for um, some areas, and in, especially in Vermont. You don't have to travel 10 miles, and the elevation, the deer density, the hunting pressure, uh, the numbers of posters or access, uh, all those the climate, elevation, right? All those things play a, a key to how many deer are in that area and of course the state wants to do, manage the best possible way they can so what they do is they break 
break states into wildlife management areas. Now, by, by breaking it into a, a, a management area, it makes, instead of having one giant rule for the entire state, and just like shooting for the moon and hoping that you know some areas will do good in general and others may not do so good they broke the state into smaller more reasonable easily determined chunks so that if they decided that the mountains and the valleys were totally different they would give different rules i mean if you were to manage the best you could you would have different rules for different areas now these areas can't be broken down too small or even by like a township or something because it would be too confusing and too hard for law enforcement or for people to understand the rules imagine saying um, you know the town of Berlin in J1 and the town of Roxbury which they're both hugely different in population of deer in people population in hunter pressure in deer density in climate um, in yards and potential for um, you know overwintering these areas are completely different and you would want different rules not to mention if the deer were healthy or not healthy and if the land was healthy or not all those things play a huge role and you can't make your WMAs uh, wildlife management units I mean WMUs you can't make them too small because then it's it's so hard to draw the lines and physically write it all down you can shoot it on this side of the road but not that side of the road and and town lines go out through the bushes all over the place they're not well defined at all in some places where three towns come together and you happen to be hunting right there you know what would you be i mean it'd be such a confusing mess you, you can't do that so they make the management units so that they're they're shaped in a way that represents most of the geography most of the deer density and most of the conditions are somewhat similar throughout most of the the management unit now there's always a big argument about where you draw the lines and what roads and and the state is actually only allowed to change WMU um, dimensions or like boundaries once every 10 years they can't change it a lot and there was a reason they didn't want to do that because it could dramatically change people's effect on nature now fish and wildlife laws are not actually managing the deer herd like the fish and wildlife department does not manage the deer herd really per se they manage the people's effect on the deer herd right all the all the deer rules are for people and that way the people affect the deer herd positively and that's a very important point when you're looking at all you don't tell a buck what doe to breed or where to live or you know you don't you, you can't you can't control them they're a wild thing that's doing its thing much less you know what disease it catches or or who runs it over right it's just a wild like uncontrollable thing but we do our best to try and control the people's effect on it in vermont we issue about I think it's seven permits for every one dead doe. So that goes to show when you give out seven permits in order to get one person to be successfully killing a doe. There, all seven may hunt, uh, three may hunt, depends on right the person. They may hunt for a little while, they may put in lots of effort, but when you start figuring out, they, they've figured out how much effort and how much success rate 
that people go out and how good they are at killing their does. One of the things about doe permits is, in general, people, when they fill a doe permit, almost the same as archery, they go to places where the deer density is pretty high and you want to, you know, you don't have to actually tell them where to go as much because they tend to go to high density areas where they have a real good chance of taking a doe. Um, and there's always that, that I think there's always going to be that part of some hunters that just seem to care a, the most about having a buck behind every bush. And truthfully, especially like in Vermont, we've been shooting about the same amount of deer forever. Like it's always been about the same amount. If anything, in the last 20 years or so, it's been a slow decline downward as our forest ages more and more. We only cut, in general, about a quarter to 1% of our forest every year. So our forest is getting older and older. Uh, an 11-inch hardwood tree is our average tree. And 11-inch hardwoods, they're not deer woods, not really. Um, they're not real bad woods, but they're not good either. Um, new successional forest um, is about impossible to put a percentage to. Uh, Nick Fortin said south of Rutland, um, the, the lower third of Vermont has almost zero or hardly any at all. Not, not a percentage. You can't come up with a percentage of it, of new successional forest. And that dramatically affects the deer herd. And, of course, deer feed, um, when you have a... When you have a year of high deer feed, which would be like bonus crops of apples, mass crops, right, uh, nuts, uh, corn, um, all those like bonus foods that deer get in the fall, they're not really deer feed. They do help the deer's uh, fat stores and the, the deer will, will start the fall in great shape because they've, they've eaten a lot and they've eaten well. Um, it, um, no doubt helps fawn um, you know milk production that way it helps the fawn some it helps the does quite a bit they'll it'll help their fat reserves to get through in a not so good deer yard but the bottom line is that 17 percent of vermont which is like actual deer yard and when we have those deep snow winters and the deer have to go to these little special areas in order to eat and the trees in those areas are older and there's not much for new successional stuff for them to eat you know deer eat from about four feet down and as you get into spots where there's no brush or all at all and it's only that overhead canopy they really have to scrounge quite a bit and it can be really tough when Say say your deer yard isn't as a five out of ten, right? It's not good, but it's not bad. And then you have a pretty high density, even medium. Say we're we're in alignment. It's at carrying capacity, and you get two slammer winters. And now that carrying capacity herd gets into that yard and really eats it as much as it can and makes it and then the following year eats extra stays a little longer now the the five that your deer yard was could easily be a three you know after back-to-back -back bad winters now say the deer all made it and they got even bigger 
and then it skips a year. You, you had a little tiny bit of growth and everything was a little bit of an improvement because they didn't have to go to the yard and didn't have to stay in there quite as long. Um, and then you get back to one more slammer winter. Now your yard's right down to a two or a one. And when they get to that point, they're pretty much done any new production. You almost have to have no deer around for sometimes eight or 10 or sometimes even 15 years or more, depending on the light, you know, it, it could really devastate a yard. And having a plethora of deer is actually the road to the bottom. And getting near at or beyond carrying capacity is a bad thing. I'm amazed at the people who will still not even want to shoot a doe if it made the herd healthier, right? They don't care if the herd's sick. I'm still not shooting a doe. And of course, the worse it gets and the more Mother Nature is whispering, we don't need more deer. We should actually be collaborating. We should be helping her out and keeping the deer numbers low so that the ones that are there are nice and healthy and they can bounce a little bit better when the conditions are right. It may never bounce again. My, my land is part of a, probably a third. I have 100 acres with about a third of it of a deer yard. And in 30 years worth of work, I have not improved it. After artificial feeding, they, there was almost 200 deer in it. And there was way too many, like 200 deer per square mile. 200 deer inside of one square mile is not a good recipe anywhere in the United States. It's not good. I mean, you're asking for disease, you're asking for a degraded herd, and you're definitely going to get a degraded land. The effect of them feeding almost 200 deer for about four years is that now it's been almost 30 years and it only holds seven. That's a shocking thing. And that's with 30 years of my work on a third of the yard. Remember, the other two-thirds of the yard hasn't been touched. It's just been kind of left alone by deer. And some of the canopy is slowly, you know, thinned and died off, fallen over, you know, storm damage. And every one of those hemlocks, every one of those cedars that falls over, boy, the deer are on it, right? They chew every little bit off it. And it's shocking how it doesn't come back. And as you have, like Vermont used to be a farming state. And of course, when the cows were out to pasture, they didn't eat pine. They didn't eat spruce. They didn't eat cedar, hemlock, you know, and which are important trees now. They grew in a pasture and there was hardly any deer back then. And because it was out in the open, those trees were allowed, you know, to get above the deer's reach and mature. And now if you had a, let's say a cedar swamp, and when you go and look into that cedar swamp and you see, you know, what the average age of a tree is, you know, look at all the diameters, pick out one, you know, cut it down or, or tap it right. And you find out, you core it and you see how old it is. And then when you look at the younger replacement trees and you start counting the number of older ones, the number of replacements, half that size, you know, say your average tree is a, a 14 inch cedar and it's 60, 70 years old then you count the number of those and say there's 30 and then you go to the the trees half that size and there's only a half right there's 15 replacements 
right? See, this yard is just going to keep shrinking. And you're, if there's been too many deer for any length of time, you will have generations of trees missing from that forest that someday, 30 years from now, there won't be any of those trees to replace the dead and the dying as they go. So the, the age structure and composition of your forest has a lot to do with your productivity and the longevity of it. And, and of course, because it's all privately owned, can the state do anything about that? Of course not. And even if they could, they don't have the manpower or the resources to be even begin to think about how to do it, right? Um, deer, what makes a good deer yard and all the parameters that, that you know, the slope and the soil and the, the type of trees and the density of it. Nobody's even studied this stuff. Imagine that. The, the 17% of Vermont that is our deer wintering areas, we're taking 100,000 plus deer and jamming them in 17% of the state. And you can put food plots in all you want out in the middle of open, wide open, wherever. But the truth is, right, that 17% is the most critical habitat for us in this location with the snow and the weather and the conditions and the soils that we have, the age of the forest, with how we think about cutting, it's such a huge thing that you can't even begin to put your, put your real thoughts to it and be able to understand. And after working on my little yard, you know, in all my spare time, literally, especially in the last five years straight, I've come to understand, and it's been almost 30 years of working on a yard, 30 years, on about 100 acres, working on it on my weekends, my nights, like I just keep working on it. It's, it's amazingly productive compared to the land around me. I have created an oasis, but that comes at a price, right? You set a table and something shows up. The more productive I make my land, the more deer are on it and the more unproductive and more it undoes all the work I did. So even if we all worked on the entire state for a hundred years straight, all it would do is make the land more productive and it would undo everything we did. Right? It would just use it all up. So ultimately, the best way and the best possible solution at the quickest is to keep the deer within the carrying capacity of the land. An important way to measure land, since you know you have 100 acres, I have 100 acres. You know, how do you tell like yours is a five and mine's a six? Right? How do you measure the land? One of the best ways to measure the land, especially on a large scale, is to measure the deer that come from that land. Because the deer are like a concentrated uh, effect of all the results of the land. You know, if there's a lot of pollutants in the ocean, you go check the whales, right? They're out there for 50 years swimming around in that stuff, right? So you check the whale for pollution and it would tell you how the ocean is doing, right? He's eating and concentrating krill, right? It's kind of the same thing. You check the deer that comes from each township and you get a good reflection on how those deer are doing. Some of our management units like B where it's overcrowded and there's just way too many deer. We're, we're seeing um, two and a half year olds, 14% of them have spikes. That's not good. That, that really isn't. And when you add an antler restriction to that, and we now kill the best and leave even more spikes on the land, plus the older ones that are already there, after a time period, like at first, you're only affecting the buck's genetics, right? Half of the herds, half one gender, 
of the herd's genetics. After a while, when you make a definite change in all of that gene pool on the buck half, it will spread into the does eventually and it will affect them too. At first they dilute what you're trying to do, but over time when you stay after it and stay after it and stay after it, it will make a difference in the entire herd. And we may be seeing that. We're, we're studying it right now, the department's watching it and trying to see just what the deal is. And if it turns out that um, we have say less brow tines, it very well may be a cause of you know, for number one, too many deer on the landscape, so they're not doing that well. Number two, shrinking deer in general. Like fawn, a fawn has never been through a winter. He has no reason to be light unless mom's health isn't that good or the land isn't that good. And that's a huge indicator. On youth weekend, when you start weighing fawns, it's an important indicator as to how they're doing. It's like going to a hospital and measuring all the human babies, right? If they all of a sudden, all of them weighed four or five pounds, you'd say, well, what's going on with the moms? Something's happening here, you know, right? It's basically the same thing. And it's a great way of measuring how the does are doing by measuring the fawns and their babies. So there's a lot of dynamics going on here, and that stuff really matters. It's, it's huge. And when, you're, when you don't care about the land at all, you don't mind if the deer are a little unhealthy. Just in order for you to be able to shoot one, you're not a conservationist at that point. Right? You, you can't hide behind that anymore. And like your antis are going to use that against you. Right? You call yourself conservationists. You say you're doing it for the numbers. But the truth is you just want a big buck to brag about. And you don't actually care about keeping the herd healthy, keeping the land healthy, and, and doing a moral job for wildlife and the people. I mean, there's some moral integrity there that, that really counts. That will definitely be... That could definitely be the downfall of hunting right there. It very well the, the could. Un, the unwillingness to you know participate in... A, a larger vision of what hunting should do and what it's responsible for and you know if you're going to be a hunter it's not just you know taking a deer and getting food for your family and you know doing what we've always done as humans and as as predators and as people that you know are involved with nature's processes it's also you know we should be ambassadors and we should be representatives and we should be the guardians of the wild places and things that that kind of is you know that that idea that we should embody because who better no one else knows what's going on except for the people that are out there seeing it well we have a unique perspective because we're we're in it like we're in it we 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 lay down the money we we um actually are the department's you know tool for doing its job and the, uh, our effectiveness is very important to them. It's very important to the deer, right? The deer and the hunter need each other. They really do. One will not do well without the other. Now, there's this extra part that does matter, right? Like, if you're going to honor this great big buck, well, what's the matter with honoring the doe, right? You, you have to, you're going to honor one. You have to honor them all. I never met a bad deer. You ever met a bad deer? I never met a bad deer. Not one. Nope, not one. And in the end, if I care about the system and I make sure that it's upheld, I will be happy with all the little things that come with it, right? I love the handles. Don't get me wrong, right? 
I think we all do. Those handles sticking out of the top of those deer, right? <laughs> it we makes love them those. easier to drag. <laughs> it, it does, right? And and I love the fact that there's more meat in a big one, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. But also, too, I understand, you know, people's feelings. And most of us can only use a deer, maybe two at the most. But, and it's understandable when, like, only one in three guys is willing to shoot a doe. That's it's somewhat understandable but if we were really about what we say we're about we'll apply ourselves because it does matter and um, when you have that special doe doe only season right and you, you see a giant buck and you can't shoot it right well that happens in the summer that happens in the winter that that happens all the time and don't yep. even let that bother you and it should be a celebration of, of what we're what we're really about. Yes. And it shouldn't the departments should not have to issue a billion tags in order to get the job done. And people will say, well, they're doing it for the money. Well, no, they're not. It's actually illegal for state fish and wildlife departments to sell away their deer herd. And they would love to issue the exact amount. And people would go out and exactly do what they said to do. I mean, we pick these people, right? They're part of our government. I, I want to say probably fish and wildlife departments are the, the best branches of government that are the m- most well-liked. Well, the most, I mean, they're, they're among the most trusted. I would trust yeah. Fish and Wildlife Department more than the state legislature. I don't right, know or any, DOT. You know right? what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. That rough road I just drove over, right? Sorry, DOT. <laughs> yeah. Right? And when you have that many volunteers, like sportsmen are really volunteering their money. They volunteer their time to keep people safe and make sure nobody gets hurt. They volunteer for nature to be there and help pay it. They're the support system. Granted it's not perfect it's not a perfect support system and that's what the antis are are throwing at us right you guys right your egos you're this you're that and here they want to tear out like fish and wildlife and the sportsmen who are actually the only legs on the table holding up wildlife being there unless you just left it on your own and you were willing to deal with the the crashes right the bust and booms of abundance or scarcity right right? you know and biodiversity comes at a price if if you live in yellowstone and you want wolves around well that's going to come at a price you will lose elk right you may lose all the elk who knows right it's important to like keep an open mind to how it's working and Go with nature's working method. Her working method is deer need to go sometimes, right? And everything goes to keep you alive every day. Something died for you to be alive today. The, the other thing that I'm uh, curious about, and I would love a chance to speak uh, to a deer biologist, is what is the benchmark of a healthy deer? You know, because mm-hmm. we, we're trying to measure the deer herd, and, um, you know, the, the herd is uh, as a whole but also the individual deer that comes to the you know the check-in station what is a good example of a prime healthy deer in any age class structure mm-hmm. like what's it what does a healthy doe look like what does a healthy young buck look like what does a healthy fawn look like and what are the numbers and you know how how do we how do we get a kind of a plan together that's gonna that's gonna deliver us to where we want to be because it's one thing to say that yeah we want we want 
you know, a well-structured buck and doe age class structure. We want a good buck to doe ratio. We'd like a healthy forest and yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of those things are a bit, they're a bit kind of more theoretical and abstract when you think about them. And we kind of, we need to put that in concrete terms of what it is going to be and what it's going to look like in order for us to build a plan to go anywhere. Well, there's a, there's some logic, right? I mean, logic and science underpin possibility, right? There's nothing that's 100% certain. But logic and science will allow you to, you know, hurl your satellite all the way to Mars and hit a crater where you wanted to land, right? You know, it it can actually point to the probability, right? Math, right? It points to what is likely, probably likely to happen. One of the things, of course, when it comes to measuring deer is that uh, the beam diameters on younger bucks, the one and a half year olds, have been like a staple measurement that the department uses um, in all the departments have been using for some time now, comparing notes, right? All the fish and wildlife departments talk to each other, but you know, deer biologists all talk to each other. They find out what's going on. And, and of course you can measure individuals and you want to measure as many individuals as possible so that you could start a trend of some kind and see trends up and down, um, or stable. Um, all those things will count. And in the past here, especially for about 35 or 45, 45 years now they've really been actively measuring deer on the opening weekend to see how they were doing and they kind of came up with this system they started at first by measuring the beam diameters at the base of a buck's antlers and if the the young especially year and a half old bucks they're like the teenagers they are often on the lousiest of land the does will claim some of the better land and they'll shove out those teenagers. They may be in places that are unfamiliar to them, and um, they're like the teenagers. If the teenagers have real small spindly, and they're, it's hard for them to survive, it will show up in their beam diameters if they're not doing well, especially with high deer populations and feed quality really drops. The antler nutrients that go into antler development are kind of like after their body somewhat somewhat so if they're not doing that well it tends to show up in their antler beam diameters and of course their overall weight um, their overall weight changes as the like from bow season to november 1st and then into december right there's huge fluctuations for the time of year but the overall body weight and the overall body weight trends and the sample sizes of course have a lot to do with it i mean it's pretty tough to pull one tick off a moose and tell whether or not that moose has got lyme disease by that one tick right he may have eighty thousand ticks on him right science says you need a big sample size so you try and sample you'd want to sample a lot of ticks you'd want to sample a lot of deer and we try and, and sample about the same amount or as many as possible every year so that you get the, the most likely probability, right? The math comes out better. They'll check body weights. Um, they'll check uh, the fat on the breastbone. A lot of times is a pretty good indicator. They'll also be looking at uh, antler beam diameters and body weights, uh, numbers of deer that get shot every year. That's another big, huge one. And it, that's a reflection of, of, you know, maybe the birthing of each age class, you know, over the years. Um, they're looking at that. 
it's important uh, fawns too are a big indicator indicating of the the doe's health remember a fawn has never been through a winter it has only been born in the lush perfect time of the year when there was you know somewhat feed they're also feeding on mom's milk and mom's milk is a big part of it and if mom is struggling it will show up in her milk and the fawns will tend to be lighter so measuring fawns that are killed on youth weekend that's why youth weekend is so important for people to shoot small deer because they are an important biological indicator you know and I, there's this general consensus don't kill a little one but it's actually not a bad thing to kill some small ones if anything and you take that one and you save the doe she'll have two next year right if you had a mature doe and a fawn and which one would you shoot for nature it's probably better to take out the little one because if you shoot mom right and she's going to have two next year there's three deer taken plus if the fawn is kind of small and it doesn't make it through the winter without mom now it dies too and you lose four right so if you really want to bring the herd back you shoot as many mature does as possible it will have the biggest effect on reducing the herd also too though if you want to do it more gently then you would go after the fawn well you would you would take some more of those uh you would take some more of the older does if you have less hunters because depending on your hunter success rate and yeah. depending on the amount of hunters that you have, you're going to have to go for those older does and you're not going to want to shoot fawns because you'll do more with one hunter. One hunter will be able to essentially take take more deer off the land in less time. Well, there's an age-old, uh, definitely age-old. I've been listening to this my entire hunting career and I heard tons of it and I heard it rebooked way back when I was in high a freshman in high school right I, I would go to Aldrich Public Library in the 777s and I would dig out those hunting books and and uh, deer hunting bible and all those books and they would talk about how important it was even back then to keep the deer herd under control and and how if you didn't it was a road to no deer at all and being within control now of course we always look at we, we do everything as people by comparison. So if five years ago there was a ton of deer and now there's none and then no good buggers, right? And you don't even ask why. You just say, oh, the department issued a billion permits. Well, the reason they did that is so that we'll have some deer in the future, not to wipe them out. The department is not, they're in charge of keeping healthy and abundant deer. Like I said in the beginning, you can't let that part go. Healthy and abundant, that is their charge. They they have to do it by state statute. It has to be both those things. And of course, they're trying to balance. Oh, I thought, I guess he's pulling over. I saw the flashing light and I couldn't figure out what he was doing. Some wrecker back there. Anyway, they're, they're trying to keep it a healthy balance between the numbers of deer and the health of the deer so that the land stays productive and all three of them have to work together it's it's a big deal there's so much to think about and it's easy to say well if we don't have any fawns around we won't have any bucks around and the number of bucks is going to go down and i'm not going to be able to get one right <laughs> right it's going to be harder for me or um those kids are shooting them all right <laughs> right you you hear all these arguments and 
I guess superficially, there might be a little bit of something to it, but ultimately, it it's actually counterproductive because you want you want to keep them healthy and keep them running so that they can stabilize. And Mother Nature will do it. I mean, we can all stop hunting tomorrow, and Mother Nature will do a job on them, and it'll be rough right she may make a super abundance of deer because we're not killing any and then they will wipe the land out and then there'll be none and it'll be that way for a long time and that's what she would want you know to make the trees recover when you set a table something shows up for it right we we saw that this year with the bugs right vermont four million acres of hardwood trees and and along come the bugs to saw holes in that giant green table that was set right when you set a table, you put in a food plot, and you um, you have a ton of bears show up, and you're mad. It's like, man, you just made McDonald's in the middle of Ethiopia here. Really, literally. And you're mad because people showed up to eat, right? That's exactly what's going to happen. You create this oasis. It will get used, and it will be the best around, right? So it's that part of it is actually productive. And on a small scale, that little food plot does a lot of good. And it gets people to think about habitat and the importance of habitat. And as they work on it longer and longer and longer, put more and more effort into it, they find out just how much like nature just undoes what you did. Yes, because what's happening is the surrounding air, like they're not the surrounding land doesn't have the same carrying capacity that the land you just increased and bettered does now so like you've been working on your 100 acres for 30 years if let's say that it used to be seven deer carrying capacity in that 100 acres and now you increase the 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 wintering habitat you increase the feed you increase you know their ability to hide and put a fawn in there for right like say 10 years worth of work right and now and now you double the carrying capacity in 10 years and all the deer are now going to go to that. And I've got double the deer. But the, right? all the land around you is still at seven deer capacity. Right. And now you've just pumped 14 deer in there. So now they're going to do an even worse job on all the surrounding land. Because it's not like they're going to stay in that 100 acres and not go anywhere else. Right. They're going to stay in the area as a whole and come back and go through those corridors and go back and forth from your land to your neighbor's land. They finish off the crappy land. Right. They eat the crap out of my land. And now the whole thing's ruined again. And the whole thing's back to where it was. Right. You didn't get anywhere. Right? Now, granted, if if you have an old, old deer yard with no food in it and you, you put out like, say, a food plot right next to it, right? And now the deer are there and it's a yard. Like, you have to almost pick the time of year you want the deer to be around. If you want them around in the summertime, hanging out in your deer yard, you're burning your candles, right? You're, you're burning it at both ends, not just one. And inviting them to be there year-round in a deer yard where they should leave for the summer and not be there at all so that it can grow some, right? You have to also do the opposite of what your neighbors are doing, you know? Because very few of us own land enough to have everything a deer wants on it. So they come and go. We, we share our deer with our neighbors, right? They're, they're not our deer. They're everybody's deer. So we're willing to do that if we're actual sportsmen, right? We care about it. And we care about what's going on with our land and how our actions affect things. And I've been trying to affect it the most with the least amount of harm or possible problems. 
and I found that the chainsaw was the best way. Whatever food was available, they come and use it. And surplus food, sometimes I would have a little bit of surplus food. You know, I'd have a few extra raspberry bushes that didn't get eaten, and I was happy with it. And I know when that's the case, there is some surplus food kicking around that I'm below carrying capacity, and I'm happy. When I go into a section of woods and there's nothing for deer to eat anywhere, my neighbors, right? I, I walk down underneath those hemlocks and there's absolutely no food at all. And I'm equally discouraged when I see three little trees that tried to grow and the deer nibbled the crap out of them. It, it's like, I know that I'm wasting my time. If anything, I've learned from the 30 years of putting a chainsaw to my land and, and doing it very carefully, you know, individual tree selection, being careful with the babies. I have multiple generations. I've started a, a very diverse age structure in my trees. And oh, is it beautiful compared to all the other places around me. And what happens? They come right in, right? I have a bull moose pole in. He chews the crap out of the whole thing. Eats every fir tree I've got growing everywhere. My God, did he do a job in two weeks, right? I couldn't chase him out. He wanted it. You know, it was so good for him in there. And we ended up finding one horn because of it. That was good. It was, yeah, that was, it was cool. A bowl. You never, you never really get to find moose antlers on the land. One of the one of the things about a deer yard is you're actually changing, exchanging, brush for fawns. That's what a deer yard does, right? You exchange bushes for deer. Now, if your yard has no bushes in it, you're not going to have many babies, right? For fawns. So by by keeping the land able to produce fawns and keep them coming and have them have an ocean to hide in, have them some way of landing together and lots of fawns all at once hitting the ground as early as possible so they're big and robust so that when a bad winter comes along they can survive it and everything keeps running. And of course, you, you, you the antler thing and the antler genetics, we, we're always trying to mess with deer genetics. Well, all the deer's genetics are important, right? Milk production, body fat, hooves, hair, all the genes for a deer to survive, all of those are very important. And a deer from Florida is not going to do well up here. It doesn't have the genetics it needs to do well. So having local deer growing up and staying on our land without any real work and staying within the carrying capacity is the only way to manage deer. There is no other way. There, there isn't. There just isn't. Population is the only control you actually have. The thing that's going to change, um, you know, if you take a state like Vermont, the thing that's really going to make a difference in the way we manage our wildlife is to one uh broaden the scope of vision on things that we care about look at that rainbow wow, nice that, that thing is massive yeah yeah nice. i couldn't see that guys yeah this is, it's right in here i mean the end's right here by the covered bridge oh no kidding it's very vermont-esque to have a rainbow land by a covered bridge with a giant rock wall with no deer wow <laughs> anyway isn't that something that is something the you know we we have a very narrow scope of wildlife that matters to us yeah. you know as a whole we we care mostly about deer and moose and bears a little bit and then you know not many people think about chipmunks and squirrels and grouse and moles and you know birds but when you do manage your forest and you create 
more more habitat for that deer like it also invites all of the other animals too and it creates more life and it creates shelving for birds to nest and you know it does it does more good than just a deer and that's one of the things that we have to consider is it's not just deer that depend on the way we manage our forests it's it's all the other creatures honor one honor the whole system right when you work for the whole system you collaborate with the system and you do what listen to the system it's important when when deer herds start declining there's usually a reason for it and it's time to investigate right it's not time to get upset not time to blame somebody it's time to investigate what's going on and what's what's the reasoning behind it and what can we do and and most of the time it's it's related to our values what you value matters the the other thing that would help is if the people whether the hunters or the general public if they would get together with the forest service and fish and wildlife department in the same meeting yeah wouldn't it be useful for the people who manage the animals quote unquote and the people who manage the forest to communicate seems how those two things are directly related well they've been doing it a lot especially with us they've been doing it a lot more i don't know how it is in your state but i got after them pretty hard both both sides of the fence and i'm like you both are under natural resources right a and r and it's very important that the two of you communicate right the biologist might very well get in the woods you know three four weeks or a month a year and the foresters out there you know 200 days a year right he's out in the woods all the time looking at stuff he knows where the biggest deer yard in the state is where how what the age structure of that deer you want to know where the bucks are you ask the loggers oh yeah Yeah. no question right you know in in the shape and the the construction so to speak like you know what what makes up the ingredients that make up your forest and and where those ingredients are the prime age and the right stuff can not only lead you to where a big buck lives or a nice deer herd lives within a place that might not generally have a lot of deer i, I we're going to be around 14 15,000 deer that's what we're going to be shooting i think probably forever um we've gone from 100 and 20 30,000 hunters you know all the way down to 60s you know we're in the 60,000 hunter range and we're still killing the same amount of deer so it's actually pretty good hunting (laughs) you know numbers wise so for us to be able to look at the landscape and say well in general this is about how many deer we hold and it does seem to be headed down a little bit and if there's something we can do to improve things and and if everybody does a little something it matters right you fix up one apple tree it matters right you're helping nature right it's it's not a crazy help you're not dumping out a bunch of corn that might spread a disease or something right you're not stuffing them up full of something that they shouldn't be or over over making too many animals on one spot but you're you're making small little improvements that do matter. And if everybody cleaned up an apple tree, well, there's sixty-eight thousand apple trees cleaned up. That's a big move, right? And and it of course will benefit everything from mice to ants to bugs to deer to moose to to people, right? Even we eat the apples. So it, it, those little things can really matter. And if you picked out a little small amount and you did it, you help give back a little bit. And then like the deer herd, oh yeah. We, we mostly wanted to pull back the curtain on the illusion of, like, 
the one person managing a small section of their forest and what it actually does to the whole of the herd. You know, in, in the case of what you've been doing for 30 years on, you know, half or a third of your land, so only a, really not that many acres, as the whole, it doesn't really do anything for the deer herd in Vermont. It doesn't really make that big of a difference, but it does make a difference to the local deer. And it does make a difference to you as a hunter because if you're doing, you know, and as a conservationist, if you're doing everything you can do, that's at least one person who's making a difference. Right. And the, you know, the pulling back the curtain and, you know, bringing some more clarity to this is not to discourage you from, you know, working on your land or putting in food plots or, you know, not. to do any of that. But what it, we do need to assess this and do need to look at it pretty objectively and saying, how much does it matter that everybody does a little bit? If only one person does does it, it's not going to make a difference at all. You know, we all have to decide right now to take a little piece of the responsibility and do it. And over this whole entire state, whether you're Ohio or Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Vermont, it doesn't matter. You can affect your state's ability to have a healthy deer herd. And not just a deer herd, your moose and your bears and anything else that your state has as you know natural inhabitants. If you want to make a difference, you have to do something. But if you're the only one, it's really hard to do that. But don't, I, let, don't let that discourage you. I don't know how many times I've talked to my non-hunting neighbors and said, well, this is what I'm doing and it's good for the deer by cutting right here and cutting those out. And these trees are too old and see how this one here is really good timber and it's worth a lot of money. And that one over there is a piece of junk and we got to get rid of it because the one behind it is beautiful and up and coming, right? And when you, you get to talking and you start setting an example, it amplifies, right? It always does. When you do good, it amplifies and you, you want to allow that. You want to let that happen. And, and it will automatically um it does make it does make especially a local difference and every little bit makes you feel good right doing good feels good and so it turns out we're not that bad after all right no and and you you owe it not only to the deer your fellow hunters to nature but you owe it to yourself to do the best you can you know whether you're on the big buck track and you're going to get him you put everything you have into it and you do is best you can you do right by him if he gets away that makes him you know a worthy opponent and if you get him that means that you know you became a hunter that could handle the the task and the challenge of getting him and you know the same thing with your woods if you're gonna care about the deer and you want to pull one off from the land you should help the land put one back put some bushes in something they can eat cut a couple trees you know (laughs) <laughs> see what see what it is that you're growing on your land. See what you're doing with your land. Because if you have any land at all, you know you can make a difference in in what the, your ecosystem is producing. I think there's no no limit to learning about things. In in every time I go out, I do, and I I want to keep that little kid open mind and the fun of, like. The scientist. I want to be that scientist that you are when you're six years old, right? You, how many little kids have you watched and you said, look at how in wonder they are about every little thing. I wish I could be like that. I don't know how many dads have been in my shop with little boys or little girls and they're walking around, right? And there's just like, what is this? And how is that? And they're looking at all the mounts and they're all excited and everything is new. I want to keep that in me. 
want to keep that openness to how things work and and openness to understanding and not having my biases get in the way right I, I don't want to know it all I want to learn it all and I want to be open to how it goes and it's important for us to do that we get on autopilot sometimes and we get to just thinking about ourselves and what we'd like to see and we have everyone has an opinion which is fine but at some point um the the argument back and forth right on facebook or something where everybody's kind of back and forth about something it the argument of war most of the time the cognitive winner is the loser right the person who didn't know something and they they come away feeling like i should have known that or or guilty because they didn't know something and they'll quiet down afterwards because they didn't know the drill but the truth is they're actually the cognitive winner because they learned something they didn't know before and and it's not that someone needs to be set straight or something like that that's not the point it's it's the point is just to um, inspire each other and learn from each other and there's all kinds of different things and there's tons of stuff that we just don't know you don't know about other people you don't know about the deer herd you can't look at one individual deer and make that assumption like an anti-hunter might do she meets one guy who's a jerk and now everybody who's a hunter is a jerk right she she's on autopilot making assumptions and the truth is it's not how it works and we can't do that with the deer we can't do that with the departments or other people we have to just kind of be open to all that stuff and i want to be that way i, I want to take it all if take it all at its face value and see it for what it is and accept it and i don't i don't scream at a crooked little tree because it's crooked there's no sense in that like if my finger and my eyeball get in an argument about whether or not it's we should be hunting right like the anti-hunter and the hunter when they get together and they argue at each other and they start poking at one another does it do the body the good right does it do any does it hurt the whole absolutely it matters right and we have to not get into that stuff too much because truthfully it's it's adding to the problem and it's not not being open being open is key well we hope you've enjoyed this podcast this is just a few of our thoughts as we're bumping along we're getting into some rough roads now But the rainbow was awesome. Might end up biting your tongue or knocking a tooth out on these. Right? (laughs) Good grief. Oh, this whole area right here. This road hasn't never been that great. But looks like they're trying to widen it out. Maybe they'll they'll bring it around like the rest of it. Yeah, they're they're doing work out here. But hope you guys are having some great times out there in the woods. And if you're sitting in your tree stand and you're all cold and wet, I hope we helped you through a few more minutes. And maybe you had to hopefully turn us off and shoot at a deer. (laughs) <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast if you liked it you know leave us a review down below to, you know let us know what you guys think you know what are your opinions on some of the things that we that we chatted about you know your ideas on you know doe hunting and about conservation about forest management and uh you know we really look forward to hearing from you guys for the rest of the season 21 hopefully i, mean, I can imagine it's going to be an improvement on last year last year is rough but we had a good time and you know we're really looking forward to getting the videos back out and uh doing the best we can
jump back into the grind. That's right. If you guys have any suggestions for future podcasts and comments, questions, you can always send those over to our podcast email, A-S-K-M-T-N-D-E-E-R at Gmail. We have that just for you guys so we can chat about all these things. Welcome to vacation. Love it. Here we go. Here we, we go. Started. Happy hunting.